pray, shall we? Father, we bow before you this morning. We thank you for your wonderful son, the Lord Jesus, who gave his life there on the cross for us, taking the punishment for our sin so that we could be right with you. Thank you for the wonderful truths of uh, your word that teach us that we can be right with you, that we can be forgiven, that we can have eternal life through trusting in Jesus. And so this morning we come to worship you and just to give you thanks for your wonderful love to us. Meet with us now, we pray as we look at your word together. Speak to us, challenge us, change us, encourage us, rebuke us. Lord, whatever we need to hear from you, we pray that we would now encounter you through your written word, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. There's an outline on your seat on the back of your uh, bulletin. If you want to use that, you can do this morning with uh, all the various verses on that we're going to look at. When I was about uh, 10 years old, I think it was, I attended our school fete in uh, West London where I grew up. And one of the stalls was a kind of spin-the-wheel type game where you spun a pointer and it landed on a particular number and you won a prize. And so you had to pay for each number you wanted. There were actually ten and you paid a a pound or something for each number and you got a bit of wood with the number written on it and uh, that was the number that you'd bought. And then as the the pointer was spun or as, as the wheel was spun, if it ended up on the number that you had bought, then you won the prize. And this particular game had numbers one to ten on it the, bot- the, the prize was a, was a bottle of Pomaine, a posh cider. I don't know if anybody remembers Pomaine or anyone drunk Pomaine. It's posh cider from the 80s. I think you can still get it, but real posh cider from the 80s. And that was the prize. If your, if your lucky number came up, then you won it. And it was all in a good cause. The money that you paid for each one of these numbers that you were kind of going for went towards buying school equipment and all that kind of stuff. So it was a good cause. So I decided that I'd have a go at this. And guess what? I won. Fantastic. It was, it was great. I'd, I'd won the bottle of Pomaine. And so I headed off home with this bottle of pomade to show my parents. Now, there was a problem with this. Actually, there were two problems. Firstly, my parents didn't drink alcohol. Alcohol was forbidden in our household, and they never had alcohol in the house. And secondly, they didn't agree with gambling. And that was precisely what I'd just been doing. So here's I gambling for alcohol at the age of 10. So you can imagine my parents were utterly horrified when I walked in through the door. Surprise! Look what I won, Dad. And my parents, you know, what on earth have we done? We've raised this child at 10 who's gambling for alcohol. Oh, dear, oh, dear. My dad actually seemed quite impressed that I'd actually managed to buy just one token and win with just one token. Until I reluctantly admitted, I think it was Christmas time, when the bottle did come out. Surprisingly enough, it went in my dad's wardrobe and it came out on Christmas Day. And it was drunk, I must say. But he was quite surprised that I'd managed to win with just one bottle, with just one number, until I admitted that actually I had bought eight out of the ten numbers available. <laughs> and the only reason I didn't buy all ten was because someone else had already got the other two numbers. So I pretty much guaranteed that I was going to win. I was going to get this bottle of cider, come what may, so I just bought every single number available to me. It wasn't so much gambling for the prize, it was more a case of me buying the prize. It would have actually been cheaper for me just to have gone to the shops and bought the bottle of cider because it was much cheaper than what I'd spent on these... Uh, Uh, tokens. Now, I just wanted to make clear before anybody starts to have a panic, I'm not trying to encourage anyone to drink alcohol. Nothing wrong with alcohol, but mustn't get drunk. The Bible's clear about that. But I'm not encouraging anyone to drink alcohol, and I'm especially not encouraging you to gamble for alcohol, especially if you're 10 years old. So please don't take that away as the message of this morning. That's not what I'm trying to do. But as I was preparing during the week to preach this morning, It struck me that what I did at my school fate when I was 10 was a little bit like Abraham and Sarah's behavior in the passage that we're looking at today in Genesis 16. And it also struck me that 
what we, that, that we also behave a little bit like this in our own lives. Sometimes we're so determined to get what we want that we will do whatever we can to make it happen. We are so determined to follow a particular course of action or we're so determined to get what we want that we do just whatever it takes to make that happen. Even though it seems as if perhaps God has said no or God has said not yet or God has told us to follow, uh, to follow a different course of action. Over the last few weeks, we've been studying the life of Abraham in the book of Genesis. And we've seen how God called Abraham to leave his home, to go, to travel a long distance, to go to a new land, the land that we now know as the land of Israel. And we've seen how God promised that he would have many descendants and that his descendants would take possession of this land. In Genesis 12, verse 2, we read how God said, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. And then God said to him, to your offspring I will give this land. And then sometime later God said, all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth. And then when Abraham's wife Sarah had not had any children, and Abraham had begun to wonder, well maybe in order for this to be fulfilled I'm going to have to adopt one of my male servants and I'll make him my heir. God actually intervened and spoke to him and he said, this man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. But then we get to Genesis 16, the very first verse of Genesis 16, which is the chapter we're looking at today, and we read these words, and it's kind of like a train running into the sidings, running into the buffers. This man will not be your heir, he'd said. A child will come from you, from your own uh, body will be your heir. But then we get to verse 1 of chapter 16, and it says this, Now Sarai, Abraham's wife, had borne him no children. Reality somehow, or suddenly, catches up with Abraham and Sarah. Despite all these promises, the reality for Abraham and Sarah was really quite different, wasn't it? Abraham was about 85 years at this, at this point. Sarah was about 77 years old. So whilst it was still medically and technically possible for Abraham to have children, Sarah's time had long passed. And so it was totally understandable, wasn't it, that, that both Abraham and Sarah must have really wondered, well, how on earth is this going to happen? How is God going to give us a son Maybe even did we imagine those times when we thought God had spoken to us? Have we got it wrong? Has God got it wrong? Did we imagine what happened all those years ago? Sometimes when that kind of thing happens and, and, and time takes over and it's 10, 15 years down the road, did I really imagine that happened? So let's read Genesis 16 and we'll see what they do. How do they respond to this situation? If you've got a Bible with you, you can turn with me, Genesis chapter 16. If you haven't, or you, want, or you just want to listen, that's fine. I'm going to read the whole chapter of Genesis 16. Now Sarai, Abraham's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian maidservant named Hagar. So she said to Abraham, The Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my maidservant. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abraham agreed to what Sarai said. So after Abraham had been living in Canaan ten years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian maidservant Hagar and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. And Sarai said to Abraham, You are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my servant in your arms, and now that she knows she's pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your servant is in your hands, Abraham said. Do with her whatever you think best. And Sarai mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert, it was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from? And where are you going? 
I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai, she answered. And the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will so increase your descendants that they will be too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord also said to her, you are now with child and you will have a son. You should call him, you should name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard of your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and, his, and everyone's hand against him. And he will live in hostility toward all his brothers. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. That is why the well was called Beer Lahai Roy. It is still there between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram gave him the name Ishmael to the son she had born. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. Abraham and Sarai had been promised this special son by God. And from this son would come a whole nation, the nation of Israel. And from that nation would come one uniquely important human being, one uniquely important man, the Lord Jesus Christ, who we've been thinking about this morning as we've taken bread and wine. Some 16, 1700 years after this, God chose to become a man. He, he entered into time, he became a man. And this man, according to his physical ancestry, was the direct descendant of Abraham and was the direct descendant of Isaac, the son who eventually Abraham and Sarai would have. The Lord Jesus Christ was to be the way that God would make it possible for people like you and me to have a relationship with God. See, the Bible tells us that we were all born in sin, we're separated from God. And our sins are disgusting to God, they separate us from God. But because God loved us so much, he came as a human being. In this particular person, the Lord Jesus Christ, descended from Abraham, according to his physical ancestry, descended from Isaac. And Jesus there, as a man on the cross, died in your place and my place and took, the sin that, uh, took the, our sins upon himself and took the punishment that you and I deserve for all of our wrongdoings. And there on the cross, Jesus became a sacrifice for you and for me, our substitute. So if we put our faith and our trust in Jesus, we can have all our sins removed and we can be right with God. And if we surrender our lives to Jesus and, and live for him. And this... This great person, the Lord Jesus, who some hundreds of years later would come and make this possible, whom we've celebrated this morning, who we've sung to, who we've worshipped, was going to be the, the key descendant, the, the key one that would come from Abraham. But all of this would happen God's way and in God's time. And not the way that Abraham and Sarah wanted it or when they wanted it to happen. They eventually and miraculously did have a son called Isaac from whom eventually Jesus would physically descend and we'll find out more about Isaac in the coming weeks. And it was from Isaac that one day Jesus would descend and Jesus would deal with our sin. But Isaac would be born according to God's timing and not according to Abraham and Sarah's. But it was understandable, wasn't it? Because I think if I was them, I would be utterly confused and, and just really confused with the whole situation. They struggled with this whole situation. Humanly speaking, their time for having children, despite God's promises, they knew that, humanly speaking, it was over. So before we get too judgmental, kind of looking back in time on, on characters in the Bible, I don't think I would have been trusting God particularly. I would have been struggling like they were. And I'm sure probably you would have been as well. The promises that God had made to them made little sense. And I guess that they would have been wondering if actually, did we really imagine those things? Abraham thinking, did I, you know, was that just a dream? Did, I, did God really speak to me in that way? 
So it's totally understandable that they began to look at other options. Well, are there any other ways that this could be fulfilled? You know, what other ways could we make this happen? They wanted a son, but it hadn't happened. So maybe it was up to them. They were probably thinking, what about if we take matters into our own hands? What about if we help God with this situation? What happens if we we kind of take matters into our own hands and make this happen? Look at verse 1. Now Sarai, Abraham's wife, Abraham's wife had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian maidservant named Hagar. As they weighed up their options, Sarah began to think about her Egyptian servant, Hagar. It's quite common in the Middle East, apparently, at that time, to, uh, if you've been unable to have a child yourself, to take a servant girl, a kind of, a kind of really a slave, really, and if you had them, to take them, and they would become like a surrogate mother for you. And so Sarah began to wonder, well, maybe that's the way this is going to happen. You know, or, or God hasn't done what he said he's going to do, so I'm going to have to take matters into my own hands and make this happen. And so she began to consider giving a servant girl to Abraham to sleep with so that she could provide the children and that maybe she could, bring a, she could raise a family in this way. And then as per the custom, what would happen is the child would be taken off the surrogate mother, the, the surrogate mother would be banished or, or, or removed and then the, uh, the household mother, in this case Sarah, would, would take the child and raise her as her own. Now this idea hadn't come from God. This wasn't God's plan at all. We know that the Bible teaches right from the creation of mankind that marriage is between one man and one woman for life. So this, this kind of arrangement had been t- would be totally repugnant to God. There's no way that God wanted them to do this whatsoever. And yet they not only considered it, but they actually ended up doing it. By the way, just because the Bible records things happening doesn't mean that God approves of them. People often say, well, there's all these terrible things happening in the Bible. There are lots of terrible things happening in the Bible. That's God recording history for us to learn from. The Bible says in Corinthians, Paul writes that these things are written so that you might learn from them. So just because something happens, God isn't approving of it. He's recording the mistakes of others in the past so that we can learn from them today. So what's going on here? Well, Abraham and Sarah Sarah effectively had fallen for Satan's schemes. Satan didn't want God's plan for people to be able to be forgiven, people like you and I to have a relationship with God through the Lord Jesus. And Satan would try right throughout history to do whatever he could to stop this great plan of God's happening. And this great plan of God's, which went right throughout history to have Jesus come, at that moment in history found its focus on Abraham and Sarah and on their child Isaac, who eventually they would have. And that would be the means by which eventually Jesus would come. And so at this point, Satan is doing whatever he can to pull them, to pull the key players on the stage, as it were, away from what they should have been doing, away from following God. Right throughout history, Satan continued to do that, and he continues to do that today, to try and thwart God's plans. He did it by getting Sarah to think about this idea. Well, I've got this slave girl here. What about that as an option? And Satan will often try and do exactly the same with us today. As we're called to live for God and follow God, Satan will often try and lure us away from living God's way or following uh, that, that path of obedience and from trusting God in our circumstances. So write this down. We need to be really aware that Satan will divert us from God's path for us. Write that on your outline. We, we need to be aware that Satan will try and divert us. Paul writes, doesn't he, in the New Testament, we are not unaware of the devil's schemes. We need to be really aware. Satan will do whatever he can. He'll put all sorts of thoughts in our head. He will lead us and tempt us in all sorts of ways. Anything to get us away from living the way that God wants us to live. Anything to, anything to divert us away from focusing on the Lord Jesus. So, 
For those people who've yet to trust in Jesus, maybe this morning you're here and you haven't yet trusted in Jesus as your saviour. Now the devil will do whatever he can to pull you away, to tempt you with other things, to give you all sorts of excuses why you wouldn't do that. And for those of us who have taken that step to follow Jesus, he'll do exactly the same as we go through life. We need to be really aware that Satan will try and divert us from God's path. Now we are never going to do anything as grand as giving birth to an ancestor of the Lord Jesus Christ, obviously. But, but God is nevertheless working through people like you and me, working in our lives to do great things for him. We're not going to be part of this great plan of, of salvation that, that, that God had brought through uh, Jesus. But nevertheless, we might be the people who lead others to encounter the Lord Jesus today and find him as their saviour. And Satan will do all he can to try and lure us away from trusting in God and living his way so that we make compromises and that we move further and further away from God's plan for our lives. We rarely have any concept, I think, or sometimes of the, the great things that God is accomplishing through us right now. So many conversations, situations, encounters we have that we have no idea what's really going on. And sometimes it's only years later we can look back and see how God was using us or was at work with us, in us, through those situations at that time. And when we get to heaven and see Jesus face to face, if we've trusted in him, if he's our saviour, we will finally see all the ways through which God was at work in our lives, all those mysterious situations that we wondered, well, what was that about? What was that about? And then one day, the Bible says, we will, we will know in full and we will see exactly what God was doing in us and through us and see that actually there were some significant things going on in us and through us that we're not just bit players, that we're major players on the stage, on the scene of God's plan to try and reach lost people. God is at work in us. I believe that there'll be people who come up to us in heaven when we are finally there and they'll thank us for giving that gospel tract to them or, or, or praying with them or, or giving that Bible to them. God is at work in us and God is at work through us even when we don't often realise it. And Satan wants us to, put, to pull us away to try and get us to, to compromise our lifestyle, our standards, our, the path that we're following. He wants us to pull us away from being obedient to God so that we don't follow his path, so that he can thwart God's plans. So when, like Sarah, we're tempted to do things our way rather than God's way, we need to really recognize exactly what those moments are, recognize that that's Satan at work, an attempt by Satan to divert us from living and, and serving the way that God wants us to do. Now, Sarah understood that it was God that had prevented her from having children. Look at what she says. So she said to Abraham, the Lord has kept me from having children. Sarah recognized that for whatever reason, it was God that had prevented her from having children. And yet, despite that recognition that it was God at work, she wasn't prepared to actually trust that same God with that situation. She wasn't prepared to submit to God's plan for her life. Even though, to be fair to Sarah, her situation must have made no sense to her whatsoever. And so Sarah took matters into her own hands and she set out on a course of action that was sinful by giving her servant girl to her husband to sleep with. And you know, like Sarah, we might never find ourselves in exactly that situation. But like Sarah, we, we may sometimes find ourselves in situations where what is happening to us makes little sense. Maybe that illness just won't go away. Despite repeated prayer for God to heal, that illness just doesn't go away. Maybe despite our best attempts to find a husband or, or a wife, we are still single. 
Maybe we keep trying to change job, but every job we go for, we just get refused. Maybe despite all our efforts, our marriage is still failing. We'll all face situations like this at some times, or at some time or other in our lives. Situations that are unpleasant, not what we would choose, and that often make no sense to us. And the challenge in these kind of situations is this, it's to trust God and to submit to his plan for our lives, even when it makes no sense. So write that on your outline. The challenge in those kind of situations is to trust God and to submit to his plan for our lives, even when it might make no sense to us whatsoever. But to take that step and say, God, this makes no sense, but I'm going to trust you with my life in this situation. I'm going to submit to your plan for me. Sarah and Abraham weren't prepared to do that. And instead they took matters into their own hands. They were actually trying to force God's hand. They weren't prepared to wait. They weren't prepared to to do it God's way. So they forced God's hand. They they tried to take ownership of the situation. Now it's not wrong to to want to be married, for instance. But when, despite our best efforts, we still find ourselves single, then we need to be willing to accept that maybe God wants us to stay single, or at least for the time being, to remain single. Or we can take matters into our own hands and instead of submitting to God and saying, I will only marry a person who is a Christian because that's what the Bible teaches, we decide that, for instance, our our desire to be married is greater than our desire to submit to God. And so we marry an unbeliever. We get what we want, but at what cost? It's not wrong to want a different job, but if we've applied for job after job after job and God God keeps closing those doors, then we need to be willing to accept that at least for the time being I need to stay where I am. Or we can take matters into our own hands and and force the situation and maybe even go after a job that's going to clash with our faith in some way. If we're not careful, we can be a little bit like me at that school fete, so determined to get what we want that I bought practically all the tokens to make sure I'd won. We can be sometimes so determined to make sure that what we want happens, comes about, that we force situations or even we find ourselves sinning to, to, to make what we want happen, happen. And in those situations, God may eventually say, okay, I will let you have what you want. I will give to you what you want. Even though it's not going to be good for you. So the challenge for us all in those situations is to submit to God's plan for our lives, even though it makes no sense. And instead of taking matters into our own hands, like Sarah, we need to submit to God and trust him with our situations. Proverbs 3, verses 5 to 6 says this, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways submit to him and he will make your path straight. You know, it may be that God has spoken to us in the past, to to you as an individual in the past about something and we just have to be patient like Abraham and Sarah. Maybe that we're seeking something in our lives and despite the fact that what we're seeking is in of itself a good thing, For whatever reason, God is saying no right now. And so we need to trust in the Lord with all our heart and not depend on our own understanding, not try and fix things ourselves on what we think should happen or or when we would like it to happen. And instead, take that step back and, and seek to be, instead of focused on our own plans, on our own dreams, on our own ambitions, God calls us instead to focus on Him so that we live for His glory. And whatever He gives to us is kind of a, a side issue, that we live and just say, it's all about God's glory and I will do whatever it takes to glorify God. Jesus said these words, 
but seek first his kingdom, that's God's kingdom, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. Paul writes in the New Testament, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. And the challenge, and it's difficult, this is, this is not easy to do in life, but our focus needs to be not on the things of this world, the things that we would like, even if they're good things, but instead on God, on his kingdom, on living for him, on bringing him glory. And Jesus is calling us to take our focus off the things that we want and shift our focus instead on, on how I can bring God glory. So write this down. I need to focus on bringing God glory rather than on my own plans and ambitions. I need to focus on bringing God glory. And then if God has promised something to you, it may well fall into the place at the right time in God's timing. God's timing is perfect. And so instead of being taken up with our own plans and our own ambitions, we'll be taken up instead of focusing upon what God wants us to do. And that's not easy to do. It's really difficult to do. And for Sarah and Abraham, this would have been really challenging. Sarah ultimately wasn't prepared to do this. Look at verse 2. So she said to Abraham, The Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my maidservant. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abraham agreed to what, she, to what Sarah said. <clears throat> Instead of standing up for what was right and taking a godly and a spiritual lead in his marriage as he should have done, Abraham wimped out at this crucial moment. And that's a challenge for us, isn't it? Those of us who are husbands this morning. Are we taking a godly lead in our marriage? Are we the spiritual leader in our home? This isn't about lording it over our wives and, and kind of running roughshod over our wives. It's about standing up and taking that spiritual godly leadership so that we lead from the front, that we set the spiritual temperature in our home and amongst our children and in our marriage, praying with our wives, praying with our kids, reading scripture with our wives, reading scripture with our kids, taking responsibility for ensuring that, that Christ is right at the centre of our home. And that's our job as husbands. And I don't do a great job at that a lot of the time. And I'm sure lots of us struggle to do that. But that's the responsibility for us as husbands, is to take that spiritual leadership. Not a riding roughshod, but a, but a, a sacrificial, Christ-like leadership role in our home. So that our wives and our children see us living for Jesus. And that we take that leadership role. Instead of wimping out as Abraham did here, and kind of absolving himself and, and passing it on to Sarah. Abraham didn't do this. And so verse 3 says, So after Abraham had been living in Canaan ten years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian maidservant, Hagar, and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar, and she conceived. And then, as with all sin, it all went horribly wrong. You know, we can't sin in a vacuum. We, we, Satan loves us to, to, to fool us into thinking that we can sin, and it has no effect, and, and we're just kind of in some little vacuum, and there's no effect on ourselves and on other people. That's not true. Sin always has consequences. It always has consequences in our lives and it often has consequences in other people's lives. Look at verse 4. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarai said to Abraham, you are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my servant in your arms and now that she knows she's pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Because they'd failed to trust in God, and because they'd sinned by getting Abraham to sleep with Hagar, the whole situation becomes poisoned. And the situation perhaps wasn't great to start with, but now the whole thing is a mess. Hagar now hates Sarah because she knows that Sarah is going to take her baby off her. It's understandable that she's going to hate her for that. Sarah hates Hagar 
and she hates Abraham. And the whole relationship, the whole household is utterly poisoned and utterly ruined because of their sin. And Abraham continues to fail to take a spiritual and a godly lead. And he says, your servant is in your hands. Abraham said, do with her whatever you think best. Then Sarai ill-treated Hagar, so she fled from her. What a mess. What a disaster. And that's what happens when we don't submit to God. And it's what happens when we take matters into our own hands. And it's what happens when we sin and when we don't do things the way that God has instructed us to do it in the Bible. When we fail to submit to God, there are consequences for us and for everybody else that we involve. When we sin, we have to face the consequences. The person who decides to marry a non-Christian, despite the fact that the Bible clearly says don't do that, has to face the fact that the likely outcome will probably be an unhappy marriage. Because in most cases, the non-Christian will not become a Christian. And so you end up with two people living very different lives. And in my experience, two very unhappy people in general. Hagar found herself caught up in all this. We don't really know how much choice she had in this situation. Probably not very much. But her life, as she's caught in the crossfire of this situation, is massively impacted in a, in a negative way because of Sarah and Abraham's sin. And so she runs away back to Egypt. But God, in his grace, as he so often does, reaches into her situation. Look at verse 7. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. And in a beautiful and in a gracious moment, God speaks to Hagar. And we don't know whether this is actually an angel or whether it's actually a physical manifestation of God in the flesh in some way. But either way, this is God speaking to, to Hagar. And in a beautiful moment, he speaks to her and he tells her to go back to Sarah and to submit to her. God says he's going to bless the son that Hagar's going to have and she's to give him this name, Ishmael. And he's going to have many descendants. But you know, God doesn't erase the consequences. The son that Hagar would go on to have, Ishmael, would, as we'll find out if you read a bit further in chapter 21, end up having to leave along with Hagar because of the friction between all of them. It's never going to end well. And God makes it clear that Ishmael and Isaac are going to be enemies and that their descendants are going to be enemies. Now, God did forgive Abraham and Sarah as he forgives us today if we mess up. But he didn't erase the consequences of the sin. And he generally doesn't do that today for us either. If we've trusted in Jesus, then our sins are forgiven, past, present and future. But when we sin, we have to face the fact that there are consequences and other people are involved. And God doesn't just take a rubber and erase it all out. He erases our sins. That's dealt with by Jesus on the cross. But we have to live with the consequences, the physical realities around us as we go on through our lives. Sometimes God is very gracious and we don't have to face the consequences. But more often than not, we do. When we sin, we mess our own lives up and other people's lives also get caught in the crossfire. And they often get damaged by our actions as well, just as Hagar and Ishmael found themselves damaged by this situation. And so having failed to trust God and submit to his plan for their lives, Abraham and Sarah had to live with the consequences for the rest of their lives. But they learned their lesson to some extent and they were able to trust, to trust God with their future. And as we'll find out in chapter 17, God made it clear that Abraham and Sarah would have a son of their own. And so it was through that son that God would eventually build the nation and eventually, hundreds of years later, the Messiah, the promised one, Jesus, would come. God become a human being and would die on the cross and would take the punishment for your sin and my sin so that we could get right with God. And Abraham and Sarah were eventually able to trust God. You know, it amazes me, actually, that the Bible is just full of people who are failures, just like Abraham. 
The Bible speaks so well of Abraham, and yet he's a bit of a, he's a, bit of a waster, really. Like so many of the great heroes of faith, you look at their lives and it's mistake after mistake after mistake. And I think that's fantastic because actually it tells me that God has chosen to record their mess-ups and their screw-ups and their foul-ups because God works with ordinary people just like you and me who screw up and mess up and foul up. And yet God is gracious and he wants to pick us up and carry us on. And look what amazing things God can do with people if we submit to him. And eventually from Abraham and then from Isaac, hundreds of years down the road, Jesus would come. And you know, it's only when we learn to trust God with our futures, as Abraham and Sarah eventually did, that we experience true peace. When we try and take things into our own hands, it inevitably goes wrong. It's only when we trust God with our futures that we experience true peace. Isaiah 26 verse 3 says this, You will keep in perfect peace him whose mind is steadfast, because he trusts in you. Even though our situations and our circumstances might well be the very last thing that we wanted or were expected or planned for. When we learn to trust God, when we submit to him, however painful that might be, and it really is at times, we experience then true peace, peace in the middle of that storm, the peace that only God can bring. So write this down. If we trust God with our lives, then we will experience true peace. True peace won't come when we take matters into our own hands. True peace won't come through sin. True peace, true peace won't come through trying to force God's hand. It comes when we submit to him, when we trust him with our lives. Peace in the middle of those storms of life. <clears throat> now life rarely pans out the way that we expect it to. It certainly didn't for Abraham and Sarah. And it, life rarely produces what we would like it to when we want it to. But God is in control of our lives and is working away behind the scenes all the time to achieve his plan for us. Romans 8.28 tells us this. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. And this is a really difficult verse, isn't it? It's true because the Bible said it's true, it says it's true, but we often struggle to, to, to experience the truth of this because sometimes our lives are, are, are so painful and difficult and we wonder, is God really at work in this? But it's true because God says so, that he is working in all things, for the good of those who love him. And if we love him this morning, then he's at work even in our most difficult, painful situations for our good. And the challenge in our lives is to trust God and to choose to believe that in all things God is working for our good, even when it makes no sense to us. And as a result, to submit to him, to submit our plans to him, not to take matters into our own hands, try to force things that we want to happen to come about. Because when we take matters into our own hands, we may well get what we want, but at what cost? Let's just take a few moments to bow our heads and be silent. I just want to encourage you today just to, just to close your eyes, just to bow your head, to be silent. I just want to encourage you to bring the situations in your life to God and surrender them to him. Whether it's your health, a job, a relationship, a dream, an ambition, or anything else, and to trust God with these things and submit to God's plan for your life. And if you've been taking matters into your own hands and not trusting God, then can I encourage you now to surrender that very thing, whatever it is. Sub surrender yourself to God in that and submit to him. Just be silent and respond to what God might be saying to each one of us.
Let me read this prayer by Max Licato. You are a great God. Your character is holy. Your truth is absolute. Your strength is unending. Your discipline is fair. Your provisions are abundant for our needs. Your light is adequate for our path. Your grace is sufficient for our sins. You are never early, never late. You sent your Son in the fullness of time and will return at the consummation of time. Your plan is perfect. Bewildering, puzzling, troubling, but perfect. I'm going to finish now with a song. And the words are going to be up on the screen which for, us to, for us to listen to. It's a song by Lauren Daigle, I Will Trust in You. And the words are up on the screen. And when the song is over, the service will be over. But please do come and chat with me afterwards if you want to discuss anything I've said this morning. Thanks, guys.